everyone. Welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. This week, I'm joined by former Indiana Supreme Court Justice Frank Sullivan. Frank spent 19 years on the bench before leaving to join the faculty at our sponsor, the Robert H. McKinney School of Law. Frank and I had a long talk, but one that's not quite long enough for two episodes. So we're going to try something a little different this week. Today, you're going to get part one of our conversation. On Thursday, we will release a mini episode with the second half of the conversation. Before becoming a member of the state Supreme Court, Frank was the Indiana State Budget Director. Let's kick things off by finding out how he got that position. I became state budget director in January of 1989. I was appointed to that position by Governor Evan Bayh, who had been elected governor of Indiana in November of 1988. Prior to that, I'd been practicing law at the Indianapolis office of the law firm of Barnes and Thornburg. My practice concentrated in business and commercial law. And along the way, I became acquainted with Evan Bayh when he was a candidate uh, for governor. And he knew that I worked in the uh, business uh, field and reached the conclusion that I might be able to be helpful to him and his administration as state budget director. That's how you got in with him. And is he the one that nominated you for the uh, Indiana Supreme Court? Uh, yes, that's not precisely the, uh, the term, uh, uh, but uh, he uh, actually appointed me uh, to the Indiana uh, Supreme Court. Uh, unlike the federal uh, judicial system where the president uh, nominates uh, a candidate for judicial office and then that candidate is confirmed or not by the United States Senate, uh, in Indiana, uh, the governor uh, makes a direct uh, appointment. Okay. Did you have any prior judicial experience? I had none. Why did he appoint you then? What? Well, that might be a better question to ask him than to, than to ask me. Uh, but uh, I had been, uh, as uh, uh, my answer to your uh, earlier question indicates, his uh, state budget director uh, for four years. And so he knew me well. Uh, the position of budget director is a, is a, a, a very important one in government. Uh, uh, the holder is essentially the chief financial officer of state government. And uh, in working uh, with the chief executive officer of state government, uh, he got to know me uh, well and uh, knew of my deep interest in law, uh, uh, knew something, I guess you'd say, about my decision-making ability. And I think it was his view that a lot about uh, uh, the job of being on the Indiana Supreme Court involves it in one of two different ways government. Uh, first, uh, it involves making uh, decisions about cases that often involve government. Uh, people have disputes with government, they come to court, and they eventually get to the Supreme Court. Uh, these include disputes uh, uh, in the criminal justice system, of course, when the government is always on the other side, but it includes things like tax disputes and zoning disputes and a whole range of other kinds of cases that people have with government. As state budget director, I got to know an awful lot about government and how government operates. Second, being on the Indiana Supreme Court is a little bit like being on the board of directors of the state's judicial system. Uh, uh, Indiana has a wide system of, of courts, uh, a whole series of uh, programs. 
uh, uh, training programs, for example, for judges, and uh, the Supreme Court is responsible for administering those programs. And uh, as chief financial officer, if you will, for the executive branch of state government, I think he thought that I might have some skill and ability uh, serving as one of the leaders of the judicial branch of state government. All right, and this being your first judicial experience, was there a learning curve? Well, I think in any new job, there's a learning curve. Certainly in what I'm doing now, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later, uh, there's been a very steep uh, learning curve. Uh, but in the end, uh, I was called upon to make a series of discrete decisions. Now, these were decisions about cases uh, brought to the court, uh, and they were very important uh, uh, cases, uh, uh, almost without exception. Uh, but I'd been spending the previous four years making decisions in government of a different kind, but also important decisions as to uh, things like various funding levels for uh, uh, public schools and prisons and health and welfare programs. Uh, so I was comfortable having to make decisions of consequence. Uh, and uh, uh, while it did take me uh, some time uh, uh, to get up to speed on the substance of the particular decision, that really wasn't foreign to me uh, based on what I'd been doing for the previous four years. Now, I think a lot of people that you hear state Supreme Court judge people just think about what you do at the bench while you're on the bench. What's the day-to-day of that job like? Well, uh, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, it's probably uh, quite different than people's common uh, uh, perceptions. Uh, first and foremost, you're actually on the bench hardly at all, uh, uh, probably no more than two or three hours maximum a week. Uh, uh, that's because the Indiana Supreme Court is an appellate court. There are no trials in the Indiana Supreme Court, and uh, so no occasion to be sitting on the bench presiding over the taking of testimony and arguments. The only time you're on the bench when you're on an appellate court is when the lawyers come in and make their arguments to you in person uh, as to their cases. This is usually called oral argument. Uh, in the Indiana Supreme Court, with only a few exceptions, uh, each oral argument allocated no more than 20 minutes to each side. Uh, so the five of us, there are five members of the Indiana Supreme Court, would sit on the bench and hear each side make argument for 40 minutes. Uh, and that was it. Uh, but that's not to say that we only worked two or three hours a week. Uh, much of the work uh, of the Indiana Supreme Court is done in the judges' own offices in which they do the following three things. First, in any particular week, approximately 20 new cases, new appeals, are filed at the Indiana Supreme Court. For the most part, the Indiana Supreme Court has discretion as to whether to take those cases or to leave the cases stay uh, as they came to the court with the decision of the court that had it before us affirmed. Uh, but each of the five of us would read through all of the briefs and all of the prior decisions in each of those 20 cases each week to make an independent judgment as to whether uh, we thought the case ought be taken by the Indiana Supreme Court or not we would generally take about 10% of those. 
So that's one thing that we would be doing uh, in our offices. Uh, second, uh, after the uh, decision to take a case was made, the case usually would be scheduled for oral argument. We've already talked about that. But getting ready for that 40 minutes of question and answer would take some time and preparation. And so I would look again at all of the papers in that uh, case and formulate a series of questions that I wanted to pose orally to the lawyers once we were in the courtroom. Then third, uh, once the court has taken a case and had oral argument, uh, then the court has to decide how to dispose of that case. Each of those dispositions would be by a written opinion uh, uh, of the court, uh, and one of the five of us would be assigned to write that opinion. Uh, so a third thing that we would do in our offices would actually be to write up the reasoning uh, for the decisions uh, of the court. We would call those opinions. Uh, uh, so those uh, three types of uh, things uh, on uh, cases uh, would uh, keep us uh, uh, busy uh, much uh, of the rest of the week. But there's more. <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 We, uh, as a court, would generally meet uh, for a half to a full day a week, the five of us face-to-face, and talk about our decisions as to whether to take the case and as to what to put in our written uh, opinions. Those weekly meetings we called court conference. Uh, you hear the United States Supreme Court uh, use the same term when the nine of them get together, a court conference. And so that itself would take uh, a measurable amount of time. I might, uh, if you'd let me, uh, say uh, something about three other aspects of the Supreme Court's work that I have not yet mentioned. Uh, first, the Indiana Supreme Court in some ways functions uh, a little bit like a legislature in the sense that the court promulgates rules for the operation of the court system uh, throughout the state. What do I mean by that? First, rules of procedure as to how uh, courts are to conduct their business. Uh, who gets to go first? What the rules of evidence are? who gets to take whose deposition and the like. These are called rules of trial procedure. Uh, the court also promulgates rules of evidence when hearsay evidence is admissible and when it's not uh, admissible. The court also promulgates rules governing the conduct of lawyers and the conduct of judges. That is to say, a lawyer's code of ethics, a judge's code of ethics. Uh, in point of fact, there are probably a half a dozen other sets of rules that the court promulgates that lawyers and judges are required to follow in the business of conducting uh, 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 litigation and the business of courts generally. Uh, so the uh, writing and amending from time to time of rules is a major part of the court's work. Second, I mentioned that the court develops a code of ethics for both lawyers and for judges. Sometimes lawyers and judges are accused of violating that code of ethics and disciplinary proceedings are initiated. The Supreme Court is responsible not only for supervising 
the lawyer and judge disciplinary process, but also for being the ultimate decision maker as to whether a lawyer or judge is guilty of misconduct and, if found guilty, uh, punishing that lawyer or judge. The third of the three things that I uh, uh, said I wanted to add is, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, there is a major administrative component to the Indiana Supreme Court's uh, uh, responsibilities, administration in the sense of being responsible for overseeing the operation of the court system in Indiana. Uh, What does that involve? Making sure that there are proper training programs in place for judges, making sure that technology is available uh, to courts uh, to the extent uh, that it's uh, needed. Um, even such things as working with courts in helping to decide how long court records need to be retained and when they can be destroyed without having to worry about uh, some cold case coming back later on and needing those court records. So a major uh, part of the court's time is spent uh, in overseeing administrative responsibilities. Uh, In this regard, uh, my own uh, uh, personal uh, responsibility was helping the court uh, uh, further various technology initiatives uh, throughout the court system. I spent uh, probably an average of one day a week working exclusively on court technology matters. Uh, It was very interesting, very challenging work. I think we did a lot of good work, and I think the courts of Indiana are the better for it but it was a big part of my job that had nothing to do with deciding lawsuits. When we return, we're going to discuss one of those things that has nothing to do with deciding lawsuits. But first, our sponsors at the IU McKinney School of Law are happy to welcome former U.S. Ambassador to Costa Rica, Ann Slaughter Andrew, Class of 83, as the commencement speaker on Saturday, May 9th. She will also be a guest on an upcoming episode of Is It Legal? So look for that in coming weeks. More information on mckinneylaw.iu.edu. When we left off, Frank was discussing the duties judges have that most of us may not think of. One of Frank's was something called JTAC. JTAC was an acronym. The court doesn't use it anymore, but it was an acronym for the uh, Judicial Technology and Automation Committee. Uh, we started the court uh, started this back in 1999 uh, when uh, it reached the conclusion that the technology available for Indiana trial courts was inadequate uh, to meet the current needs. Uh, I won't even uh, uh, tell you uh, how bad things were there. Uh, uh, you wouldn't believe me if I did, uh, but uh, I'll tell you about a few things uh, that we did at the start and then uh, began our most ambitious uh, undertaking in about 2001-2002. One of the things that's happened in the face of budget cuts and tax shortfalls uh, in this state, uh, and I think other states as well, is that uh, whereas uh, many counties used to maintain full law libraries in the county courthouses, uh, those had fallen victim uh, to budget cuts. Uh, At the Supreme Court level, we arranged for every Indiana trial court judge to have access to an electronic legal research database, uh, a service called LexisNexis, 
uh, which we paid for, that is to say the Indiana Supreme Court paid for from the court budget, but allowed the judges in every single county in Indiana to use. So even if their courthouses didn't have a books library, they had access to all the legal research they might need online uh, for helping them in their work. But the biggest uh, undertaking uh, that uh, we uh, engaged in uh, began with a conclusion in 2001 that all Indiana trial courts ought manage their dockets using the same case management system. At that point in time, each individual county had its own system or no system at all, uh, just used paper and pencil, to keep track of the cases. Uh, our view was that if all Indiana courts used the same case management system, then any lawyer, any judge, any citizen who wanted to check on the status of a case in any court in Indiana could simply go online and do so. Uh, they didn't have to know even for sure what county or what court the case was pending in. They could find their case in a single uh, search. Uh, this proved to be a very major undertaking, and indeed to this day it's still not uh, yet complete. But approximately 60% of the state's caseload today is all part of one integrated uh, case management system managed by the Indiana Supreme Court, uh, and that's up from 0% when we started. Pretty good improvement right there. You mentioned earlier, going back a little bit, that uh, you guys took about 10% of the cases that came in, and that the state Supreme Court is an appellate court. How many of those appeals were successful? Well, uh, I think uh, I'd like to take a quick step back and say that uh, after a case is decided by a trial court in Indiana, the first level of, of appeal is to uh, a court called the Indiana Court of Appeals. This is an intermediate appellate court that sits, uh, if you think of it in terms of hierarchy, above the trial court but below the Supreme Court. A citizen in Indiana has an automatic right to an appeal and to get a written decision of that appeal. And so of the cases that are appealed to the Indiana, to the Indiana Court of Appeals, uh, approximately 20% uh, 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 are successful. Now the loser at the Indiana Court of Appeals uh, has the right to ask the Indiana Supreme Court, as we've already talked about, to review that decision uh, of the Court of Appeals. And uh, I'm not sure that I ever remember really uh, 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 checking the score on that, but I would guess that uh, probably uh, uh, half of them uh, were successful and half of them not. Now, some of those would have said, uh, would have been uh, decisions, right, where the Indiana Court of Appeals would have reversed the trial court, but the Indiana Supreme Court said, no, no, the trial court was right all along. Uh, so, uh, uh, the way you count them may depend on whether you're counting uh, how many of the appeals were ultimately successful uh, and how many appeals from the Indiana Court of Appeals were successful, and those might be two, uh, two, different, two different numbers. numbers. That's fair. Are there any cases that stand out that you particularly enjoyed or that were particularly memorable for you? Well, uh, uh, I was on the court for 19 years, and uh, so... Uh, there were lots and, and lots of cases. 
uh, that were uh, that were memorable. All of them very serious. Remember that in every single case, uh, there are two parties involved, and the case is probably pretty important to both of them, or it would have never made it to the Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, to say that you enjoyed working on a case is maybe not exactly the right way. I mean, there's a certain amount of intellectual uh, uh, satisfaction in having worked on a on a on a difficult or particularly interesting case, uh, but you never feel particularly good or for particularly bad uh, uh, about the outcome because you know there's a winner and a loser in every case. I would say though that uh, if you were to ask me, uh, uh, David, about the um, uh, about uh, uh, the cases of which uh, I was most proud, uh, I would say this. Um, when you are appointed uh, to the Indiana Supreme Court, uh, your partisanship uh, is not a factor. That is to say, you don't run for the Indiana Supreme Court as a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, nevertheless, we are appointed by governors, and governors are either Democrats or Republicans, and uh, it's a historical fact that uh, Democratic governors have appointed Democrats to the Indiana Supreme Court, and Republican governors have appointed Republicans to the Indiana Supreme Court without exception. I'm not sure that that's the way it should be. There's nothing that requires it that way, but that's the way it is. Uh, during the entire time that I was on the Indiana Supreme Court, there were three of us who were appointed by governors of one party and two of us by governors of the other. Uh, we had uh, three uh, Republicans and uh, two Democrats uh, from the time I was first appointed uh, through about two years and uh, for the last two years and in the intervening 15, 14 or so years, uh, we had um, three of us appointed by Democratic governors, two by Republican. So it's not precise to say that we were three to two in our partisanship the whole time, but that's not far from, uh, from the case. Nevertheless, during that entire 19-year period, every single case that came to our court that divided the political parties, that is to say where the Democrats were on one side and the Republicans were on the other, every single case was decided by a bipartisan vote. Never once was a case decided along party lines. And these included uh, uh, a recount battle between the Democratic candidate for mayor in Terre Haute and the Republican candidate. It included a battle between the Democratic mayor of Indianapolis and the Republican city council of Indianapolis as to how the city county council boundaries should be drawn. It included a bitter dispute about satellite voting uh, in Lake County on the eve of the 2008 presidential election. In every one of those Democrat versus Republican uh, cases, we were able to fashion a bipartisan and usually unanimous vote in deciding the cases. And I think it was a great tribute uh, to the nonpartisan selection procedure that we use to pick judges in Indiana. We don't vote on them at the ballot box that this kind of a result could be achieved. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for today, but not it for Frank Sullivan. 
We will be back on Thursday with a special mini episode where we'll talk about why he stepped down from Indiana's Supreme Court and his current profession of teaching law. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us so you don't miss it. Listeners, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'd like to thank our sponsor, the IU McKinney School of Law, who's proud to have been named a Pipeline to Congress school by the National Law Journal. The school boasts four alumni currently serving in Congress, making it number seven in the nation for most number of graduates serving in that capacity. More information on mckinneylaw.iu.edu. That's it for me today, but I'll catch you next time on Is It Legal?